Today's daf is Vav in Masachet Pesachim. We are beginning on daf Hey Amud Bet, 11 lines up from the wide lines on the bottom of the Amud, explaining the Braita that we learned yesterday. Amar Mor, the Master said, we only know that the chametz of we only know the law with respect to the non-Jew who is not controlled by you and does not live with you in the courtyard. The non-Jew who is under your control and does live with you in the chater in the courtyard. How do we know? Talmud Lomar, the pasuk says, "Lo it shall not be found." So. The implication here is that the stricter case is the one, the more obvious and stricter case is the one in which the non-Jew is not under my control and doesn't live with me in the chatzir. That's the stricter case that we already know that you're not, uh, we already know the law in that case. And then, but what about a non-Jew who is under your control and lives with you in the chatzir? And it sounds like that's the more lenient case when really it should be the opposite. It says, it should be the opposite. That the non-Jew who lives with you in the Chatzar was under your control. The fact that his chametz would be uh, permitted to be around would be a greater leniency and should be more obviously problematic than the chametz of the non-Jew who doesn't live in your courtyard or doesn't live under your control. Amar Abaye, Abaye says, Ipuch, switch it around. Flip around the uh, the brayta, and the way that Rashi explains is that the brayta should go like this: That I only know that it's forbidden with a non-Jew who's under your control. Because it's similar to your own, right? That I know is prohibited. How do I know a non-Jew who isn't under your control that his chametz also can't be on your property or be around? That's why it says In other words, really this, the case that is stricter and more obvious should be the case where the non-Jew is under your control and lives in your courtyard and the one where he's not under your control and doesn't live in your courtyard should have been, should have required more of a proof from the pasuk. And therefore, we have to flip around the flow of the Brayta. So it mentions the case of the non-Jew who is under your control first. And then says, and even the non-Jew who isn't under your control, even their chametz is problematic if it's on your property. Okay, not the way that the Brayta seems now, where it sounds like it's saying that it's prohibited to have the non-Jew's chametz when he doesn't live on your property. How do I know that even if he does live on your property? That doesn't make sense. So Rava says, no, Le'olam lo don't flip it around, just change the sense of the Brayta. Really, this whole thing is going on the beginning of the Brayta, not the prohibition, but the leniency. That it's not going on the beginning where it's prohibiting you to have certain chametz, it's actually going on the end where it said, I'm sorry, it's not going on the end where it's prohibiting you to have certain things, it's going on the beginning where it's saying that only chametz that belongs to you is, problem, is a, problem, a problem, but chametz that belongs to somebody else is not. That you're allowed to see the chametz of others or chametz that belongs to Hekdesh, that belongs to the Bet HaMikdash. That's only, we only know for sure that you would be allowed to have the chametz of a non-Jew who's not under your dominion. And he's not, uh, he doesn't live with you in the same courtyard. Um, there, it's, there we know that if his chametz comes onto your property, it's not a problem. But how do we know that even a non-Jew who is under your control and does live with you in the courtyard, even that person's chametz is allowed to be on your property during Pesach? Because, because it says, and it's taken to mean it, does, it shall not be found on your property 
Um, but it's taking it as a leniency. So the Gemara says, but, but Rava's interpretation is problematic because the Pasuk Lo doesn't sound like it's telling you permission that not only is it permitted when the non-Jew has no connection to you and comes onto your property with chametz, but even a non-Jew who lives in your chatzer and who is under your control that you could tell him what to do. Even there, he's allowed to have his own chametz. Then why bring a pasuk of lo yimatzei, which sounds, it, sounds like it's saying it's not allowed to be on your property. So it says, you're right. Mishum lecha lecha because the pasuk says lecha, you, twice. Because the pasuk says, first of all, it says with it says with seor lo elecha seor bechol gvul lecha shivat yamim that seor should not be visible to you in your entire uh, border for seven days and it also says lo elecha chametz lo elecha seor there's another pasuk where it says lecha this multiplicity of mentions of lecha we apply to lo yimatzei even when it says lo yimatzei bebatechem it means lecha that which belongs to you not only that which belongs. Not only, not that which belongs to a non-Jew, so even if it is the belonging, the possession of a non-Jew who lives on your property, or lives in your chatzir, or is under your control, it doesn't matter as long as it's not yours. And so Rava interprets the Brite as adding a leniency. Not only is it permitted for the non-Jew over whom you have no control to bring his chametz onto your property, but even one that is under your control and does live in your courtyard, you're allowed to let him keep his chametz because it says lo yimatzei, and we have the word lecha repeated three, it's, it appears three times in connection with chametz, we apply it to lo yimatzei as well, to say that even, the, even on your property, not just in your borders, but even on your property, only chametz that belongs to you is problematic. The Gemara goes on and says, that it says, that maybe you would think that you would be allowed to just cover up the chametz, or maybe you would think that you're allowed to receive deposits from non-Jews. In other words, watch the chametz of non-Jews. So it says, no, lo yimatzei, you're not allowed to. Didn't we just say that only chametz that belongs to you is problematic, and chametz that belongs to somebody else is not? So why shouldn't you be able to have somebody else's chametz that you're watching it? Right? So, so what's the problem? So it says, kabela it depends. If you, res- if you accept it upon yourself responsibility. In other words, if he says, look, I'm going to leave this here. Watch it. You're not responsible for anything. If it gets lost, I'm not going to hold you responsible. But please try to keep an eye on it. There it's okay. But if you have a responsibility that if it gets lost or stolen, you're going to have to pay. Now it's your responsibility. So now you have a financial interest in that chametz because you have to make sure it gets back to the owner or you're going to have to pay up. That financial interest makes it in a way like yours. And then you can't do it. Rava said to the people of Mechuza, Be'iru chamira d'bnei chela, mibataychu, keivan de'ilu migna ve'ilu mitbid b'rishutaychu ka'ei, uba'itu lishlumei kedilchondamei. So he said to them, they used to have soldiers used to come and they would occasionally occupy the homes of people. They used to do this all the time uh, in, in many countries to do this. Soldiers would be allowed to, uh, um, to, to occupy the homes of people. And so when, this, when the king's army would come and they would occupy people's homes, they would, they would have food stored in the homes of certain people and they would, they would take that food. And the food was chametz. So... Um, well, the thing was, they would leave this as storage in the Jewish people's homes for when they would come and occupy their homes uh, for whatever military reason. 
And so uh, Ravat told the people they had to get rid of that chametz before Pesach, even though it wasn't theirs, even though it was designated for the soldiers. Because when the soldiers would come, if it was missing, they would require the Jewish people who had, uh, who were supposed to be supervising that food to pay for it. So therefore they had a financial interest in it and therefore was considered like theirs. Since if it were stolen or lost, it's in your Domain. And you would have to pay for it. So, it's like yours. And you're not allowed to keep it. So, they had to get rid of it. And I guess if the soldiers came, they would have to pay them the monetary value. This makes sense according to the view that something which is something which would cause me financial obligation is like money itself. But according to the one who says no, something that simply causes me financial a financial liability is not itself considered my possession. So then, why would that be the case in the case of chametz? Now, what is the what is the situation they're talking about? They're talking about a situation where a person has, let's say, a korban that he designated. He has an obligation to bring. He took upon himself the obligation to bring a korban to the Beit Hamikdash. And we know that if you say hare alai, that I take upon myself to bring a korban. So then, if even if that korban that you designated to fulfill the neder gets lost or stolen. You have to replace it with another one. So what happens if somebody steals that sheep or whatever that you set aside for a korban? The question is, is that considered stealing from Hekdesh or, steal, uh, or stealing from you? Because if it's stealing from Hekdesh, so then the robber doesn't have to pay, wouldn't have to pay multiple times, like double uh, for having stolen it because that's only when you steal from your friend. But, it, but the truth is that because the thief took my sheep, now I have to go buy another sheep. So really it's my, even though it's true that that sheep was designated to be given to Hashem, so really the person stole from Hashem and not from me. The fact is that I have to go now and buy a new sheep to fulfill my obligation. So according to Rabbi Shimon in Bavakama, that means that, uh, that, uh, that it's considered like mine because I have a financial responsibility um, if it gets lost. So according to that view of Rabbi Shimon, that whenever something is your financial responsibility, it's like a type of ownership. And therefore, if it gets stolen from you, uh, the thief is considered to have stolen something from you and not from Hashem, let's say in the case of the Korban. So then we understand why, if you have a financial responsibility for Chametz, you're considered to be a partial owner. But according to the view that says, no, you don't have a financial responsibility. The financial responsibility is not the same thing as ownership. So then why should that be the case in, the, in, in our situation of Chametz? That's what the Gemara is asking, right? That, uh, so it says, So it says, The extra pasuk of lo comes to tell you that here, a unique situation, even those who generally would not say that financial responsibility equals ownership, would hear in the case of Chamet say that the fact that you would have to replace this if it were lost or stolen is a type of ownership and you're responsible for it and therefore it is your Chamet. An alternative version of this discussion. It flips around the discussion. That according to the one who says that financial responsibility for something equals, does not equal ownership. So then we understand why we need the extra pasuk of lo To tell you that in this case, however, in the case of chametz, we do consider financial responsibility to be ownership. But according to the one that says in general, we always say that if you're financially responsible for something, that means it belongs to you in a certain way. So then, lamali, why do I need the pasuk lo lamali? Why do I need the pasuk lo Since it's generally true in all cases that anything I have a res- financial responsibility for, I'm considered an owner of. So why do I need a pasuk? So it's terich sal amina ho'il hadar The answer is that since you you might say like this. 
since uh, when it is intact, when the item is intact, I would return the item itself. It's not considered to be mine. Rashi explains, Normally, you, you would return the item itself to its, to its owner. And here with the chametz, this item, this chametz of the soldiers has not gotten lost yet. That's where it's not of no longer extent. In other words, the thing is that over here we're talking. In other words, even Rabbi Shimon possibly only said the idea that financial responsibility is equivalent to ownership where the item was stolen. Once it was stolen, and now the person who had it has the financial responsibility of, of replacing it, now we say that the, the ganav, the person who stole it, is the cause of that financial responsibility and therefore has to pay him not once but twice for the, financial, for the cost that he's incurring. However, here, the chametz is still extant. It hasn't gone missing yet. So fine, if it were lost and I had to replace it, you could say that's a financial responsibility that I now have. But the chametz that's right now exists with me, which would be the source of the prohibition, is not mine. It belongs to the owners. And even though if it got lost or stolen, I would have a financial responsibility, that's not a chametz responsibility, it's just a financial responsibility. So there we might say that uh, as long as that chametz is still extant, I'm not considered to be... Uh, the, uh, I'm not considered to be in any way an owner of it because nothing has happened yet to make me liable. So Kamash Malan, it's coming to tell you that since it has the potential, the Pasuk is coming to tell you that since it has the potential to make me liable, that's enough to be considered uh, having a financial interest in the Chametz. This, that's specific to Chametz according to that. Not necessarily would that be true in other cases. If you have... Uh, an animal of taxes. In other words, if you have a, a group of animals that you chayevet uh, that <laughs> the question is, if you have a, a flock of animals from which you're going to have to take whatever percentage to give to the king, and a bechor is born. So, in a way, we would say that the king has a financial interest in this entire flock because he's going to take a percentage from it. So even if a Bechor is born, it's kind of like partly the ownership of the, uh, uh, you know, it's partly the possession of the king until he takes his taxes. So Forget about a case where I could pay him off with money and I don't have to actually give him animals. Because there I'll say it's just a financial obligation. That's just I could pay him off. He doesn't really have any uh, control over any of the animals. The Chayav. There I would say definitely a Bechor that's born in this flock has to be brought as a bechor, treated as a firstborn animal. Let's say we have a case where there's no way he will re- he will re- receive payment. He's going to take animals, therefore he has, in a way, uh, possession of all these animals because eventually he's going to take uh, some of them as his taxes. So we could say that the bechor that's born is a partnership bechor. It's a, it's owned partially by the Jew and partially by the king, who is non-Jewish and therefore should be exempt from the laws of bechor. So my what is the halacha? He said that it's exempt. Since the king is going to is going to take taxes from these animals, even though you might be able to, uh, so in a in a case where you wouldn't be able to pay him off with money, so we're going to say that uh, he, the, he has partial ownership of all these animals until he takes his taxes. So Hatani, but we learned in the Chayevit that you do have to take uh, you do have to treat the firstborn that's born in this flock as a bechor. Hatam that's where you could pay him off. In other words, in a case where you could pay him off and he's not necessarily going to take one of the animals. So it's really a financial obligation. He could take it from the animals. He could take it from your bank account. So you'll pay him from your bank account. You won't have to worry about the animals. And therefore, he doesn't really have any ownership of the animals. And therefore, any Bechor born in there is just a purely Jewish Bechor. However, 
if you wouldn't be able to pay him off, and he definitely will take from the animals, that means he does have a right to the animals, and therefore any Bukhor born to that flock is going to be considered partially his until he actually takes what he's going to take, and it would be exempt from Bukhor. Some say a different version of this discussion. That he said straight out that the Bema of an animal, it wasn't a question posed to him, but it was a statement that he made that the animal... Uh, that I- the animals that are uh, part of this flock that's going to be taxed by the king are exempt from Bukhor. Even though you could pay off the king, even though he would take money in lieu of it, it doesn't matter since he has the potential of taking from those animals, they belong to him in part. On the other hand, a doe from which the king is going to take a tax, a dough of, of, of uh, you know, a bread dough or whatever, even though he won't take money, in other words, even though he's going to insist on taking part of the dough, and normally if you have a dough that is a partnered dough between a Jew and a non-Jew, there's no obligation of taking chala, still, you have to take chala from it. So, what's the reason? The difference is because animals, the transactions involving animals are very public. People will know that this was the, um, the flock that was designated for the king to take his taxes from it, and therefore he's going to, um, and people will know that's why the Bukhorot that were born to that flock were not treated as Bukhorot. However, when it comes to dough, nobody's going to know that the, this dough was the dough that was designated for taxes to be, pay, to be uh, collected from it, and therefore, uh, even if you could have paid him off with money, he's considered to be like a partial owner of the dough, and therefore it's exempt, um, and therefore it's going to be, um, so really he would be, it would be exempt from chala, but since people won't know, you have to take chala from it anyway. the rabbis taught, if a non-Jew enters the courtyard of a Jew, and he has his dough in his hand, in the, you know, he doesn't have to destroy, he doesn't have to take the bread from the non-Jew and destroy it. If he leaves it by him, so now all of a sudden the Jew has to destroy it. However, if he designated an area for the non-Jew, so then ends then he doesn't have to uh, destroy it anymore. Because it says it shall not be found. Now, what does it mean? What, what is the connection here? So, it's going by on the beginning. Well, according to Rav Papa, the pasuk is going on the first part that if he left it with the Jew and he had took responsibility for it, or as Rashi interprets this, is all talking about where as right, talking about where he took responsibility for it. So then. Um, he's not allowed to have that chametz. If he sets aside an area for it, she says, and he didn't accept responsibility for it. He just designated an area for the Jew, for the non-Jew to put his bread. So then he doesn't have to worry. But if he accepts responsibility, so then he has to destroy it. He's not allowed to keep it through Pesach. No, the Pasuk of Lo is going on the end of the thing. The end of the Brayta. And this is what it means. If he set aside an area for the non-Jew, he doesn't have to now destroy the chametz that the non-Jew leaves there. He says, since it's no longer your house, because it says, it shouldn't be found in your houses. And since he set him an area of his own, so when the non-Jew puts his bread in there, he's putting it into a place that belongs to him, not that belongs to the Jew. So therefore, it's not my problem. Now, Rashi says that this is, to, this is talking about the first part where it said that the, Jew, the non-Jew left his bread with the Jew was talking about where the Jew accepted responsibility. That's why he would have to destroy it if Pesach came around, because he's not allowed, to, once he accepts responsibility for it, he has a financial obligation. Obligation. On the uh, when it said that he set aside an area for the chametz of the non-Jew, it's talking about where the Jew set aside an area for the non-Jew and also didn't accept responsibility for that chametz. Tosfot says that that seems to be overkill because if he didn't accept responsibility for the chametz, then even if he didn't set aside a place for the non-Jew to place his chametz, we just said that that wouldn't be 
the obligation of the Jew because he says straight out, I don't accept responsibility. So therefore, according to Tosfot, it's saying a bigger chidush, a bigger novelty, that even if the Jew accepted responsibility, but he set aside a special area for the non-Jew to, as a self-service storage area where the non-Jew would put it, then even if he accepted responsibility, um, should the bread become lost or stolen, um, the uh, the Jew would still be allowed to allow the non-Jew to leave it there. Very interesting question because it could be relevant to a, a person, let's say, who has a storage business and a non-Jew uh, is storing some items uh, and let's say the storage uh, contract is that there's certain responsibility of the Jew, Jewish owner to customers who might leave items there. So then you're taking upon yourself responsibility. So according to Rashi, even if the person has their own storage unit, the owner of the uh, the owner of the storage uh, facility would be would not be able to allow non Jews to keep chametz there on Pesach because it would be uh, they, they would be taking responsibility for it and even with a separate designated area if the Jews responsible for it according to Rashi it's a problem whereas according to Tosafot even if there's a responsibility let's say there's a contract with the storage facility there's a responsibility there since it's your own separate area that you bring into yourself so therefore it would be allowed even though the owner of the facility has a responsibility to replace it if damaged. Interesting practical application of that machloket that I was thinking about this morning. But So the implication of this is, though, that when the non-Jew rents an area, it becomes his completely. So since you're letting him have this area that belongs to him, and presumably he's going to pay you for that storage, so it becomes his. So we learned in the Mishnah, we learned actually, we learned this a long time ago, back in Masechet Avodah on the first year that we're doing the Daf. So we're talking back going, going back years. But we learned Masechet Avodah and we learned that, if, that you're not supposed to uh, sell or lease properties to non-Jews to live on in, in Eretz Israel, and even in Surya and Chutz Eretz, to allow them to have a place that they're going to live in is problematic because uh, they might bring their idols into there. So you see that even though they're renting it from you, it, it still belongs to you. If you're going to tell me that renting out to somebody else, it becomes theirs. So when he brings the idol into his house, he's not bringing it into your apartment. You rented it to him, so it's his apartment. Right? So, It's different. Because even though in general we say that schirut renting out does not transfer full ownership to the, to, to the tenant. It does not. And therefore, if he brings idols into his apartment that really belongs to you, you're responsible for having idols brought into your apartment. However, here, since the pasuk is lo yimatzeh, it shouldn't be found, meaning it shouldn't be accessible to, to you. It shouldn't be found in your hand. Something that's in a property that you've rented out to someone else is not considered to be matsui biadcha. It's not considered to be in your hand. And therefore, when it comes to chametz, it's more lenient than the case of Avodah Zorah. If a person finds chametz in their house on the Yom Tov itself, should take a vessel and put it on top of it. It's muktzeh. He's not allowed to use move the chametz. He has to, after Yom Tov, has to burn it. But on Yom Tov he can't, so he just covers it. If it is a korban, he sees a piece of lachmei uh, toda. I don't know, he sees a piece of the uh, bread from a korban that's chametz, which is very rare. So it would have to be lachmei toda, basically. He sees it in the, in his, on, on Pesach. He doesn't have to cover it over, because why? Because people will anyway not touch it, because it's hekdesh, because it's holy anyway, they would not, not touch it. If a non-Jew leaves chametz in your property over, uh, over the holiday, so then you have to make a 10 tafach mechitza 
to separate yourself from it because mishum hekir in order to remind you and to make it discernible that it's not yours and that it shouldn't be touched. And again, if there was chametz of hekdesh on your property, you wouldn't need such a wall. Because people anyway naturally stay away from sacred items and don't uh, don't touch them or deal with them when they're not supposed to. But if it's the non just chametz, it has to be. That's why if the person sells their chametz, they always have to put it in a separate designated area that they will that it's clear that they won't go in there. It belongs to the non-Jew and they're not going to touch it. If a person goes on a trip or he goes out with a caravan uh, before Pesach, if he leaves more than 30 days before Pesach, he doesn't have to do anything with the Chavetz in his house. If it's within 30 days, then he does. Even if he leaves his house within 30 days of Pesach, he only has to clean his house, according to Abaye, if he's going to come back during Pesach. But if he's not planning on coming back, he doesn't have to. What are you talking about? If, he, if he's going and he knows he's going to be back in his house on Pesach, then even if he went on the trip six months before on Rosh Hashanah, he should still have to uh, clean it out for, for Pesach because he knows he's going to come back on Pesach. He says the other way. That if he leaves within 30 days of Pesach, then whether he's planning to come back or not, he has to clean his house. But if he's leaving more than 30 days before Pesach, then only if he's planning on coming back right before or on Pesach would he have to uh, clean his house for Pesach. And that's actually the halacha. So it's not that you need two conditions, both that he leaves within 30 days of Pesach and that he's planning to come back. It's one or the other. Either he leaves within 30 days of Pesach, even if he's not coming back, but he knows Pesach is coming up, so he has to clean up so that he has all of the chametz off of his property. And if he's leaving more than 30 days before Pesach, then he, and if he knows or suspects that he's coming back on Pesach, then he has to clean it up, even if it's more than 30 days before. In fact, Rav is consistent with his reasoning elsewhere because if a person makes his house into a storage uh, facility, in other words, he, he basically seals it off from use. If he does that before 30 days, before Pesach, then he doesn't have to go in there and search for chametz. If he seals off his house within 30 days of Pesach, so then... He and Rashi says he basically made his house into a storage for for grain. Okay, he doesn't have to look in and check it for chametz and everything if it's thirty days before Pesach. But if it is within thirty days of Pesach, then he would have to. Okay, and v'kodim shiloshim yom nami lo amaran el she'en datol lefanoto avat datol lefanoto filo kodim shiloshim yom nami zaguk leva'ir. This is only true if he doesn't plan on cleaning it out. Okay, if he plans on cleaning it out soon, he's going to clean out that house and, and take the uh, grain out of it, then he would have to, even if it's more than 30 days, um, he would have to uh, clean it for chametz beforehand. In other words, the, we say that, um, that if he does it more than 30 days before and he doesn't have any intention of cleaning it out of the, of the grain anytime soon, so then he doesn't have to check for chametz before. Within 30 days of, uh, of Pesach, he would have to check for the chametz before. More than 30 days before, he wouldn't have to unless he has in mind sometime soon to take the, the grain out, in which case we'd have to be worried that it's going to become accessible on Pesach, and therefore we would have to clean it for chametz then too. So the question is, what's the nature of this 30 days? Where are we getting this idea of 30 days from? Okay, and the concept of the 30 days is that the obligations related to Pesach fall upon a person 
30 days before the holiday. That's when they become obligated in all the mitzvot related to the holiday and all the preparations. Okay? Where do we get that from? So, we have a, a, a rule that we start studying, asking, and, and, and teaching about the halachot of Pesach 30 days before Pesach. So that means that the preparations begin 30 days before. Rabban Shemov Gamliel says, no, only two weeks before. What's the reasoning of a Tanakama? Why does he say 30 days and not two weeks? He says, because because on Pesach Rishon, the first Pesach, Moshe Rabbeinu got up Pesach and and he says uh, he taught the people about Pesach Sheni because we know that uh, Bnei Israel uh, did Pesach that first year that they were in the desert Hashem said make sure that they do Pesach on the anniversary of their leaving of Egypt and it says that they did and we know that the impure people came to Moshe Rabbeinu and said we're being left out we don't want to be left out what can we do and then he introduced the idea of Pesach Sheni so you see that even though it was 30 days ahead he still told them about Pesach Sheni so you see 30 days ahead is already preparation time for Rabban Shemom Gamliel doesn't buy that proof why? I did I read the Pischah since we're already talking about Pesach, so Masik lehug lechol milay the Pischa. So therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu detailed everything instead of just saying one general point. He told them all the details, right? Because he was on the topic. But really, normally two weeks is enough. Where do we see that Rabban Shem Gamliel's idea of two weeks? Sharem Moshe Omed Rosh Chodesh. It says that Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron on Rosh Chodesh Nisan and told them, tell the people to prepare the Korban Pesach and tell them on the 10th of the month to take the Korban and of course then on the 14th of the month to slaughter it. That's two weeks before. So you see that the original Pesach in Mitzrayim, they only had two weeks of preparation time. So, But how do you know that they actually were communicating this to the people in Rosh Chodesh? Maybe by the time they actually got around to conveying it to the people, it was already the fourth or the fifth. We only know that Hashem told them on Rosh Chodesh, but how do we know that they conveyed it Immediately, rather, Rabbi Bar Shimi said in the name of Ravina Mecha. It says that Hashem spoke to Moshe in in the uh, the wilderness of Sinai on the, in the second year on the first of the first month. And it says that the Jewish people did the Pesach in its proper time. And what do you see from there? You see that Hashem spoke to to Moshe. Uh, on the uh, in the second year that they were in the desert on, in the first month and seemingly meaning on Rosh Chodesh and it says Bnei Israel performed the Pesach in its proper time which is two weeks later so how do you know there also that it was the first of the month maybe uh, maybe the instruction came to Moshe Rabbeinu on or that Moshe Rabbeinu conveyed it not on the first day of the month but later on how do you know that it was really the first day of the month well, it says because, and, and in which case it would be less than two weeks between that and Pesach, if it was the fourth or the fifth of the month. We have a connection between two places. It says Midbar. It says here, Later on, it says that Hashem spoke to Moshe in, Mount, in the wilderness of Sinai on the first day of the second month. Just like there, it means on Rosh Chodesh. Afghan Rosh Chodesh. So to hear when it says that Hashem spoke to Moshe in the first month, it means on the first day of the first month, not the fourth day or the fifth day. 
ונכתוב ברשת החודש ראשון, ודע נכתוב את החודש שני, this is a separate issue, nothing related to our discussion directly. Our discussion directly has been resolved. We've said that the Chachamim learned from the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu taught the people about Pesach Sheni on Pesach Rishon, which there's a month in between, that shows you that you need a month out. A month ahead of Pesach is already the preparation time. Rabban Shemba Magamliel says two weeks because Moshe Rabbeinu received the commandment for the Jews to do Pesach Rishon, the regular Pesach, on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which is two weeks before. How do we know that it was Rosh Chodesh Nisan and not just the fourth or fifth of Nisan? Because there's a Gzerah Shavah, there's a connection between the word Midbar, another place it says the word Midbar, Midbar Sinai, that Hashem spoke to Moshe in Midbar Sinai, it's the first of the month. So too, when it talks about Hashem speaking to Moshe in the first month, it means the first day of the first month as well. So that now it's saying, why are these Pesukim out of order? Because you see that the Pesach... The, the, the mitzvah doing the Pesach in the Midbar was, is mentioned in the Torah in Parashat Baalot actually. So that's in Pasuk, that's in Perek Tet of Midbar. Whereas the, uh, when it speaks about Hashem talking to Moshe on the first day of the second month, that's the first Pasuk of, of the book of Midbar. That's chapter one. So in chapter one of Sefer Midbar, we're talking about the second month of that year. And, in, and later on in chapter nine of Sefer Midbar, we're talking about the first month of that year. So it's out of order. Why is it out of order? The, the Gemara is asking a general question. Right? So it says, Why is that out of order? This just goes to show you that the Torah does not follow chronological order. It follows an order of ideas. It follows an order of lessons. It doesn't follow an order of chronology. That's only true in different sections, different parashiyot. But in one paragraph, in one parasha, in one section, of course, things have to be in chronological order. It would be too confusing. We have a lot of rules that depend on the order in which things appear. For example, means that we generalize from a specific to a general. If it's a general followed by a specific, that means we limit the general by the specific. So how do you know whether to expand or limit? If things could be either order, it's dependent upon the order. If the general principle is first and the specific is second, we say you're, being, you're narrowing it down. If the specification is first and the general is second, we say we're expanding it. Right? So how do you know if it's not in order? Similarly, if you have a specific followed by a general, so we always, always say the general adds unto the specific. And again, maybe it's really a general followed by a specific and you have to narrow it. Right, so if that's true, we should be worried even in two parashiyot. If we're worried about der- derivations from the psukim being accurate and that they're based on the order in which things appear in the psukim, so then why are we not worried across parashiyot? Shapir. If you hold by the view that whenever you have a general principle followed by a specification and they're in different parashiyot, they're distant from each other, you can't learn from them. Because since parashiyot can be out of order, it might look like it's a general followed by a specific, but it might really be a specific followed by a general. But according to the one that says, even if the general principle and the specification are far apart, they're in different parashiyot, we still can learn one from the other. We can combine them to make a limud, to make a derivation. How could that be if there's a possibility that it's written out of order and, uh, and, and, it's, and the order is misleading? 
So it says, What can we say? The answer is that even according to the one that says that the Klaluprat don't have to be right next to each other, even they agree that they have to be in the same section. Because across sections, it's true, we can't know for sure that one thing was written before or after the other. But when they're within the same section, the question is, does the Klaluprat have to be right next to each other in the Psukim, in the verses? Or one can be in a, uh, the Klaluprat can be in a Pasuk Aleph, and the other one can be in Pasuk Tet, and it's okay. Meaning they're not right next to each other. So that's the Machloket about whether you're allowed to consider that a general followed by a specification if there's a lot of space between them. But that's within one segment. Across sections, across parashiot, we can't use those tools of interpretation at all because it's always possible that what seems to be later in the Torah actually is earlier in the Torah. Now the Gemara goes on. The person who searches for chametz also has to do bitul chametz. Declare he's rejecting his chametz and divesting himself of chametz. So my what's the reason? If you're going to tell me it's because of crumbs, crumbs are not important enough to be significant that you have to do bitul on them. Maybe you'll tell me that since a person has these crumbs in his house and a person generally intends for everything in his house to be safe and secure and protected, he's also giving importance to even the crumbs on the floor. But that's not true. Because the Vatani will end in a brighter. What does it mean? It means that if a person has, let's say, unripe uh, figs in his field, and he's really watching his field only because of the grapes, the unripened figs that are never going to ripen, they're never going to, it's called they're never going to become good, Okay, he's not really watching them. So they are not significant to him. So even though he's watching the field, he's watching the field because of the, uh, because of the grapes. Or let's say he has grapes that are never going to grow fully. And he's watching his, uh, his yard, his field, because of, the, uh, because of the gourds, because of the cucumbers, whatever. Right? If he actually still cares about the unripe dates, uh, I'm sorry, unripe figs and unripe grapes, and he intends to also watch them. So then they're also considered to be of value. And if someone steals them, they're liable for stealing. And, and if, he, if the owner decides to pick them, he has to take Maser from them. But if he doesn't intend for it at all, he really doesn't care. Just happens to be that they're receiving the benefit of being watched because he's watching the field for some other reason. Then even if somebody comes and steals it, since the owner doesn't care, it's really have care, it's really ownerless, they could take it and a person doesn't have to separate Maser from it. Even if the owner comes and takes it, he doesn't have to separate Maser from it because it was have care. Okay, that's the, uh, so what do you see from that? You see that even though an item is being watched, if it's only being watched because other things of value are being watched and happens to be in the line of uh, his view, that doesn't make it significant. So, so too, if, just because I close and lock the door of my house, it doesn't mean I'm giving importance to the crumbs on the floor. It doesn't work like that. So therefore... What do we say? So what then is the reason why you have to do bitul after you do bidika? Because maybe a person will find during Pesach, he will find a beautiful loaf that he did not come across during his bidikat chametz. Not crops. He finds a delicious entomans donut. He finds a delicious, uh, a, a, a delicious pastry. Okay, or a loaf of bread, whatever it is. Okay, and he now is going to see it and want it. 
And since he already nullified, in other words, his bidika was not complete, but since he nullified it and said, I don't want anything on, in my pro, that might be on my res, in my residence or on the premises that I didn't find, I don't want it and I reject it. So he already divested himself of that uh, pastry or whatever it was uh, ahead of time. So he doesn't have to worry. But if he did not do bitul and his bidika failed to uncover the existence of this pastry, so now he'd be liable for it. So it says, So why can't we just tell him that if you do find such a delicious item, just do bitul on the spot? He can't do it because, Because he might not find it until after the prohibition of chametz comes into effect. And at that point, And once a person, once the prohibition of chametz comes, a person cannot do bitul chametz anymore. He doesn't have the ability. Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar says very famously, There are two things that even though their tech, the Torah takes my power over them away, I don't actually have power over them or ownership over them. And yet I'm treated as if I were the owner. What are they? One is a pit in a public place. If I make, if I dig a pit in a public area, I'm liable for somebody getting harmed or their property getting harmed in that pit. Even though technically the pit doesn't belong to me because I can't lay claim to something that's in the public domain, but I'll be responsible for liability that occurs as a result of it. Okay, so, and also chametz, but misheshe'oto lemala. The other one is chametz from six hours and on, on Erev Pesach, once the prohibition of chametz comes in, I no longer actually have proprietary rights to the chametz, but I can, but I'm liable for possession of chametz. So ironically, it belongs to me, but it doesn't belong to me at the same time. It belongs to me only for bad, not for good. Okay, so therefore I can't do bitul if I see it. Because it's not mine enough. Bitul requires it to be mine. It's, I don't have the power to do bitul. But I'm credited with owning it. So I get the, I get the sin. Why do you have to do right after the bedikat chametz do bitul? Why can't we do it in the fourth hour of the day? Why not the five, fifth hour of the day? Why not during the day? Right? The reason is because since there's nothing special about those times of, four, of, of 10 a.m., 11 a.m., a person will not remember to do it. So they tied it. In other words, it's not the time where it's becoming prohibited and it's not the time where you're getting rid of it. So you're not going to remember to do the bitul. So they wanted to tie it to some specific moment or action that you're doing. When you're doing the bitikat chametz at night, that's the best time to do the bitul because you're involved in getting rid of the chametz and you'll remember to do it. Viniv I return to Amud Alef, Zayin Amud Alef. Viniv why can't you do it at the sixth hour right before it becomes prohibited? Right? And Rashi says, Why can't the rabbis make a takana, an institution? At the beginning of the sixth hour, okay? Meaning, right before it becomes prohibited, right? Right? When, when it's only still prohibited rabbinically, right before it becomes prohibited from the Torah, since that's the time most people were burning the chametz as it was becoming prohibited, so that would be a perfect time to tell people at the beginning of the sixth hour, that they um, that they uh, uh, that they should do bitul. Tosafot says no. It doesn't mean uh, the beginning of the sixth. It means at the end of the sixth, as it's becoming prohibited from the Torah. Either way, the point is, why couldn't they do that? So it says no, because kevan di Since the rabbis already prohibited it mid because starting from once the fifth hour is over, you can't benefit from chametz anymore. Once the fourth hour of the day is over, which is 10 a.m., on a day that is perfect, that goes from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., it would be at 10 a.m., so you're not allowed to eat chametz anymore, but you could still benefit for another hour. Once the fifth hour ends 
and the sixth uh, once the uh, fifth hour is over at 11 a.m. So now you can no longer eat it and you can no longer benefit from it. And that's the beginning of the sixth hour. So he says, since it's already rabbinically prohibited then, uh, then and it's not in his possession, so he can't do bitul anymore. You can only do bitul up to the beginning of the fifth hour when you still even rabbinically have the power to uh, dispose of the chametz, because from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., you're still allowed to benefit from the chametz and dispose of it. Once that time passes, you're not allowed to anymore. So therefore, you cannot do bitul then. As Rav Chia said, Bar Yosef said the name of Rav, somebody who betrothes a woman, okay, using the, uh, with chametz, even with very, very hard uh, kind of wheat, but it had water got on it, so therefore it would be considered like a type of chametz, okay, even though it doesn't easily become leavened, but the fact is that it's something which we would treat as chametz during the time of the sixth hour and on, even though it's only rabbinically prohibited chametz during that time because we haven't reached midday yet, that kiddushin that you did with that item of value would not be considered a valid kiddushin because it does not belong to you. Because um, there is an isur hana'a, so you do not have any power over that item anymore. As she says, even though what's happening is the prohibition of benefiting from the chametz of, that was instituted by the rabbis in that sixth hour, it can remove the kiddushin that's recognized by the Torah because the rabbis declare that it doesn't belong to you. Starting from 11 a.m., it doesn't belong to you anymore. So you cannot even do kiddushin with it, and therefore you definitely can't do bitul to it. So, is it really true that once it becomes prohibited, you cannot do bitul anymore? Vatani, we learned in a bright midrash. If a person was sitting in the Beit midrash, and he realized there was chametz in his house, right? He he should just nullify it in his heart. Whether it is Shabbat or Yom Tov. So, what do you mean whether it was Shabbat or Yom Tov? We understand how it could be Shabbat, meaning erev Pesach fell on Shabbat. This guy was, it wasn't Pesach yet, it was Erev Pesach that was Shabbat. And this guy is in the Beit Midrash, and he realizes Chametz, he can nullify it in his heart. Ele Yom Tov, what kind of Yom Tov would there be that would be relevant here? Right? Batar Isuahu. If it's the first day of Yom Tov already, that means that it's already a time where you're not allowed to have Chametz, so you shouldn't be able to do Bitul. You're telling me once the Isur of Chametz comes in, you can't do Bitul anymore. Amarav Achabar Yaakov, Achabit Talmid Yoshev Rabo Askina. We're talking about a person who was in the shiur, who was in the class with his teacher, in the Beit Midrash, and he realized he had left a dough at home that was rising. He's worried it might become chametz. He forgot to take care of it before he left. He should do bitul before it becomes chametz. In other words, in a case where there's already chametz, you wouldn't be allowed to nullify chametz on the Yom Tov itself because it already belongs to you and it's already there and you can't nullify it because the prohibition is already there. But if you have a dough that did not yet become chametz, you could nullify it in advance before it becomes chametz. Say, I divest myself of any connection to that dough and if it rises and becomes chametz, it won't be mine. So since this guy was stuck in the shiur, he couldn't leave the shiur, he couldn't leave the class that he was in. So therefore... 
uh, he he uh, wanted to nullify it in his heart because of a mat kevodor She says because he was afraid to disrespect his rabbi. He didn't want to get up in the middle of the class to go take care of the dough. So he just nullified it in his heart. And in fact, even today, if they make a matzah during Pesach, they also nullify any crumbs or any dough that falls on the side that might be that that isn't included in the matzah that they're making because they don't want it if it rises if it's left for more than 18 minutes or whatever and it rises they don't want that to become chametz that belongs to them so they automatically nullify ahead of time any dough that they might use that might become detached from the main dough that could become chametz uh, over time if it were already chametz they wouldn't be able to do bitul if the prohibition is already in effect but they could do bitul before it becomes chametz and that will work and the Gemara says dikanami we can also see a proof that this Braita is talking about a case where uh, the person was in a shiur and nullified the chametz before it became chametz because it says because it says the person was sitting in the Beit Midrash Shemami now we learn from that how does that show anything? Rashi explains it shows that we were talking about a case where it didn't become chametz yet it didn't the implication of the Brighta is that the reason why he nullifies it in his heart is because he can't get up from where he is. If we're talking about Chametz Gamur, actual Chametz, what difference does it make where the guy is located? Right? What else could he do? In other words, if the person is not sitting in the Beit Midrash, so what's the relevance of um, where he was. If, if actual chametz could be nullified on Pesach itself, so why does it make a difference that he was sitting in the Beit Midrash or not? Right? We're talking about a case where he could have prevented it from becoming chametz by running home and baking it. As she says, he would have had the ability to bake it. If he, had the, if he were free. So uh, the point is that yeah, that so he says. So you have two cases, really. Rashi says the case of Shabbat is talking about Shabbat that fell on erev Pesach, and you could say that it's, he's nullifying actual chametz that he forgot about in his house because he can't leave the shiur. When it's talking about Yom Tov, it's talking about someone who had had a dough and he forgot that he left it and didn't want to leave the middle of the shiur. So if he ran home and baked it, it would be okay. It wouldn't be chametz yet. But so, but he doesn't want to leave the shiur, so he nullifies it before it becomes chametz. And since it has not yet become chametz, he's able to nullify it even on Yom Tov itself. But if it were already Chametz, nullifying only works up to when the prohibition of Chametz begins on Erev Pesach.